Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. As the healthcare industry has expanded and diversified, the complexity of healthcare has grown along with it. Consumers have more healthcare options than ever before, which means there are more decision points than ever before, not just for patients, but for providers as well. In recent years, the focus on healthcare has shifted beyond just getting the patient better to getting the patient better as inexpensively and as efficiently as possible. In other words, the focus has shifted to maximizing quality and outcomes. As part of its efforts to ensure that patients receive effective, efficient, and high-quality care, the American Physical Therapy Association became one of the first non-physician groups to partner with the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation's Choosing Wisely campaign, which is designed to spark conversations between providers and patients to ensure that the right care is delivered at the right time. Earlier this week, APTA and Choosing Wisely released a list of five things that physical therapists and patients should question. The list is available at MoveForwardPT.com, and in this episode, we'll discuss both the list and the larger campaign with physical therapist and APTA Senior Director of Clinical Practice and Research, Nancy White, who helped curate the list, and with physical therapist Tara Jo Manow, who explains the relevance of each of the five items. Here's our conversation with Nancy White and Tara Jo Manow. Nancy, APTA and Choosing Wisely recently announced five things that physical therapists and patients should question. Tell me first about Choosing Wisely and then APTA's decision to partner in that campaign. It's estimated that close to 30% of the medical care that's provided today or close to $750 billion is unnecessary. So Choosing Wisely is a program that was started only two years ago as a partnership between the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation and various medical societies across the country to help reduce waste in healthcare. In this very short time period, over 60 medical societies and healthcare professional societies have joined this campaign by developing lists that are referred to as five things providers and patients should question. The items on these lists are developed by the professional societies or the professional organizations themselves, and the items must be based on the best available research, and they must be either tests or treatments that are frequently done but are either unnecessary, very expensive, or potentially harmful. This year, APTA was invited to be one of the first non-physician groups to participate in this campaign. APTA accepted this invitation because the goals of Choosing Wisely are consistent with APTA's goals of providing the best evidence-based care for our patients. So let's dive into that term unnecessary and what that means. I know it can mean a lot of different things in different contexts. When we're talking about unnecessary treatment, are we necessarily saying that it doesn't get somebody better or there are better ways to do it? Well, it could be either one. In essence, what this means is tests or treatments that really don't provide value, that don't lead to improved outcomes, and that also in some cases may be more expensive than an equally valuable alternative. So there may be recommendations on certain imaging procedures that provide just as valuable information as a more expensive procedure or test such as an MRI. It may be talking about the lack of necessity for certain cardiac tests or certain other treatments that don't really lead to good benefits. 
said. And in some cases, for example, with APTA's list, the recommendation related to whirlpools, that, that the use of whirlpool for wound care can actually cause harm because of the risk of infection. We're going to go through those items one by one later, but talking again broadly about it, it calls for heightened attention from patients. The phrasing of the language is written for practicing physical therapists. So why is it important for both these groups, both the provider of the healthcare and the consumer, to be equally aware of these items? Well, the Choosing Wisely lists are actually written both for patients and for practicing healthcare professionals. It's really important that patients be involved in decision-making about their care, and that they're really comfortable asking questions about the care that's recommended for them and having those hard conversations with their healthcare providers. So the purpose of Choosing Wisely is to encourage these conversations between patients and healthcare providers so that decisions are made on best research, and most importantly, they're also based on the individual needs of each patient. This is so important that Choosing Wisely, from the very beginning, partnered with Consumer Reports to provide information about all of these specific recommendations in ways that are really easy for patients to understand. Similarly, APTA has partnered with Consumer Reports to develop materials that are directed toward patients that explain APTA's recommendations. So we're hoping that physical therapists are going to make this information available to patients in their waiting rooms and other venues, and APTA is certainly going to provide this information through our consumer website, moveforwardpt.com. The Consumer Reports piece really does a nice job of breaking it down, but Tara Jovanal, let's bring you in and go through these one by one and kind of talk about what they mean from that high level. The first thing that PTs or patients should question is, don't employ passive physical agents except when necessary to facilitate participation in an active treatment program. So let's break that down and talk about what it's really saying. First off, what are passive physical agents and what's an active treatment program? Passive physical agents are things that are employed by a physical therapist and received by a patient without their participation. So they would, in theory, provide it heat in many ways. It could be a hot pack, which is something that's kept in a heating device and laid on a patient in order to warm their skin or the tissue. It could be ultrasound, which is using sound waves to generate heat. So there's many different ways that we can take heat and cold, which we call thermal agents. It just means it relates to temperature, and apply that to a patient. There are other types of passive modalities as well, which involve other agents. We talk about sound, but also electricity, even vibration, and some other things. What we're talking about when we say passive is, again, we mean that the patient is simply the receiver of the action, and they're not participating in anything during that time period. However, an active treatment program means the patient is physically participating in the program. And those are things we think of like exercise, moving through a range of motion, stretching, and many other things that physical therapists do, balance, training, etc. Sometimes passive agents could be used in order to reduce pain, for example, so that a patient can participate in an exercise with more effort because they have less pain. We're not necessarily saying that they never have a place in the field at all. What we're saying is their role really should be to supplement the active activity of that patient in the rehabilitation process and not really just be something that's done to them while they're not participating and that we call that the overall treatment. And so on the patient side, if they're looking at getting the most out of their care and with this specific item, the takeaway seems to be that if they're getting some kind of passive treatment like that, they're sitting down, they've got ice on their knee or whatever it is, that that's a good opportunity to ask the physical therapist why this ice is important and where that fits into the treatment plan. Is that what they should be doing? Absolutely. And I think they also need to ask both themselves and their treating therapist, is this the best place and time for me to receive this care? 
ice is a great example. Could I be doing that independently at home? And maybe should I? If I need ice because I have some swelling, for example, it might be that doing it frequently throughout the day is more beneficial than doing it one time in an office. So it really is a great chance to say how best to use my time while I'm in physical therapy with you and we have this one-on-one contact time. Let's talk about how best to use this time and then what things can I be responsible on my own to do to help my condition. Let's move then to the second thing of those five things that PTs and patients should question. It's don't prescribe underdose strength training programs for older adults. Instead, match the frequency, intensity, and duration of exercise to the individual's abilities and goals. So that's a lot of text right there. Let's talk about underdosing strength training programs for older adults. What's the danger of that? When you think of a dose, what you're saying is how much of this thing, medicine, exercise, should I be getting in order to have the effect? Because that's really what a dose is. It's how much you're getting to have an effect in the body. What we're saying with this particular goal is you need to dose or match the intensity of your exercise to the goal you're trying to achieve. In many cases, it could be strength. It might be endurance, meaning that your muscle is available to you for long periods of time and not how powerful it is, but how long it will last for you to do longer-term activities like long-term walking, for example, or stair climbing. And what we're saying is be very cautious that in older adults in particular, we match the effort that they need to put forth in the exercises high enough so that they actually get the benefit of them, which is strengthening or endurance as two examples. What we see often is that especially older adults, they're given exercises, but the intensity of the exercise, either how often they do them, how many of them they do, or how much resistance or effort they put forward in doing those exercises don't actually add up to gaining strength. And quite honestly, it's a waste of time to put in an effort and not get the benefit. That's a problem. It also doesn't achieve the goal. And if strength or endurance, as two examples, are your goal, then you're trying to achieve those so that you can do something. It might be improve your balance. It might be be able to navigate through your home more safely. It might be to get in and out of your car with greater ease. If you don't actually strengthen, then you don't achieve that goal. And so that time is lost, and you have to, in essence, start over again to achieve the goal that you are after. So just to look at this through an example, this really gets at the idea that each patient is different. And for example, for one 75-year-old adult, walking for a mile might be significant effort and might do significant things to improve their health. But for another 75-year-old adult, they might not actually be getting anything out of that one-mile walk. Is that basically what this is getting out of? That's exactly what it's saying. And it's asking both consumers to recognize that when someone asks them to do something with significant effort, it's intended to give them the actual benefit. Sometimes my elder patients will say, well, I don't want to be a marathon runner. I just want to be able to be more efficient in my home or my activities. They may not be used to doing these exercises because they haven't been weak before an illness or some kind of an injury. It's so that we can communicate with each other and recognize that the goal is to match the effort to the outcome that we're trying to do and that sometimes that's a compromise between both parties to really get that effort at a high enough level. Let's go to that third thing now. It's don't recommend bed rest following diagnosis of acute deep vein thrombosis after initiation of anticoagulation therapy unless significant medical concerns are present. Okay, so that's a mouthful. So let's first start with just DVT itself. Let's just do the 30-second version. Who does DVT typically affect? DVT stands for deep vein thrombosis. Basically, it's a blood clot that happens in large veins and that are deep, which is where the name comes from. 
it's not uncommon with people who have had been bedridden for a period of time, usually more than three days, or they've also had a major surgery within the past month or so. Those are pretty decent risk factors. Anytime someone's immobilized or not moving for a period of time, there's a risk of generating a blood clot. And we hear about it sometimes on the news when it happens to people we don't expect, like young people. We've had news reporters who got a clot in their calf for being on an airplane for way too long and then being in a tank because they were covering something. And that was the cause of the blood clot that happened in the deep vein. But it really happens from immobility or, again, risk of surgery. Patients who've had an active cancer at higher risk is another example. So it's something that occurs. It's a small percentage, but it's something that we look out for as a side effect of either a surgery or an immobilization. This avoiding of bed rest. Don't recommend bed rest following the diagnosis after the initiation of anticoagulation therapy. So what's the risk there? Take me through that. Why would that be a bad thing for a patient? One of the things with a blood clot is that what you don't want to have happen is a portion of the clot, this blood that is basically coagulating, and that basically means clotting, um, which we want to have happen when we cut ourselves because we want it to clot so it doesn't keep bleeding. But we don't want clots inside the veins. We want that to be free-flowing. So when a clot like that were to break off, it actually can travel through the body, and if it goes into the lungs, it's called a pulmonary embolus, and that can be both dangerous and in, in serious cases fatal to a patient. So that's obviously what people are afraid of. They're afraid of having something travel through the body and cause death or serious illness in that patient. The idea of not moving early on is that what we want to do is we want the body to wall off that clot and we want no more little pieces to tag onto the edges of it because they're the ones that are easy to break off. Once we've given this anticoagulation therapy, we basically are thinning the blood. And by doing that, it doesn't clot as easily, it doesn't grab onto the edges, and therefore those little tiny pieces that might break off are way less likely. Once that therapy started, actually what we really want to do is avoid bed rest because bed rest is part of the risk factor for clots and it doesn't really improve your overall conditioning or health. So we actually want you to be active and it's actually to your benefit to be active. People do it out of fear, which is if I don't move, then maybe that nothing will happen. But really, once you've had that therapy early on, you really do want to be moving, and it's the best practice after uh, DBT. So whereas the first two items in the list were really more about getting the most out of your treatment, this one's really about avoiding catastrophe, basically. In essence, it's really about avoiding using fear as the decision-making for positioning or activities when really the best evidence suggests that it's not necessary. You're no more at risk for being active except for risks of other problems. Let's move then to the fourth item on the list. It's don't use continuous passive motion machines for post-operative management of patients following uncomplicated total knee replacement. Let's break down what that means. So first of all, what are examples of continuous passive motion machines? This is also called a CPM for short. Basically, a CPM machine is a pretty large piece of equipment. It's all metal and it has straps on it, and you basically lay your leg or strap your leg into it. It lays on the bed underneath your leg when you're in bed, and it glides your leg up and down, creating movement of the knee. That piece of equipment has been used routinely after total knee replacement, but it's been studied quite extensively. The issue is here, do we need this in order to rehabilitate after a total knee? And so there's that line in there It says following uncomplicated total knee replacement. So uncomplicated in this scenario means what? It generally means if you're a first-time total knee replacement, so it's not your second surgery on that same knee, 
And it also means uncomplicated by other serious medical conditions, let's say like a stroke or some kind of a lung issue. So there are other times when there might be another reason to add this, but in general, it's really an unnecessary component and takes both time and money to utilize it, both of which are not getting a return for your investment. Is this an area where just essentially practice has advanced? So once there was this way of treating it, now evidence has shown there are better ways to treat it as the treatment for total knee replacement is involved. Obviously, it's a pretty new procedure. So is this an example of that, just the evolution of physical therapy? I think it is, but I also think it's also an evolution of our ability and willingness to measure things really well. I think that in theory, it makes a lot of sense that if something moves my leg while I'm laying in bed, maybe that's going to be better for me. So I think it made a lot of sense to people to use it. But when we actually measured it and really looked at its value, it really wasn't that helpful. What is more helpful is actually the patient moving the leg themselves. So what we have moved again back to is this active treatment program, which we already talked about earlier. It really does matter. The patient participating in moving the leg ends up being more valuable than a bulky machine that does it for them. Also, one of the things that we have improved is getting patients moving early after surgery, being active, getting up out of bed. That didn't always happen. We didn't always have physical therapists in those rooms early after surgery, and people could stay in bed for prolonged periods of time after a surgery, in which case this was the only way that that knee moved after a procedure such as this, which is significant. Now, with the improvements that we've made in the early access to care, we really can bypass things that are just no longer valuable and move to the most active and most benefiting interventions, such as getting up and getting moving. Now we can move to the fifth item in this list of five. Nancy mentioned it earlier, and it's the easiest one to remember and say it's simply don't use whirlpools for wound management. So that sounds simple enough. First of all, what kind of wounds are we going to be talking about here where this would even be a possibility? In particular, we're talking about open wounds. We're talking about wounds that are slow to heal. They may be infected, and they may be chronic, meaning something that's occurred or continued for a long period of time. Those tend to be the wounds that are managed by a physical therapist and a wound specialist rather than a typical small injury that's treated independently at home. So why would a patient be put in a whirlpool in this scenario in the first place? Originally, whirlpools were used to create what we hoped was a cleansing environment, and we kept washing and flushing and cleaning a wound so that we thought it would improve the quality of the wound itself. But it turns out that there are many things associated with these whirlpools or these water baths that end up actually not being best practice for wound closure and wound healing. So this is one of those things, quite frankly, that many physical therapists were taught in school to do that we simply don't use in current practice. We've gone through each of the five, and if you're listening to this and you want to see it in a list, you can see it on the consumer website, moveforwardpt.com. Tara Jo, having talked about these, I want to come back to the title of the list and make sure we come away with the right mindset. It's five things that PTs and patients should question. It's not necessarily five things that should be forbidden. You mentioned along the way that sometimes these things might be appropriate. So the bottom line for a patient, when they look at these five things, What should they be thinking in terms of how they approach their physical therapist and talking about these things and how suspicious maybe is the word they should be if some of these things are prescribed? It's important that patients realize that this list, other than Whirlpool, which we really have moved past using in current practice, is not a list of things that are inherently dangerous. They really are things that should be discussed and if a physical therapist recommends avoiding them with good rationale are probably good choices of time spent 
in the rehabilitation process. If a therapist is doing interventions that are on this list, I think it's a very reasonable conversation to say, is this really adding to my rehabilitation or might we be able to spend our time in a more productive way? Are there things I could be doing differently in my active treatment program or in my home program to supplement what you're doing and have a conversation about which choices are being made and how best to get through the rehabilitation process as quickly and efficiently and effectively as possible. And now we've been through the five things, it's really apparent how diverse they are. So let's go back again to why these five things and could there be an additional list in the future, for example? APTA began this process of developing our list by reaching out to physical therapists across the country and asked them for suggestions of treatments that are commonly done but whose use in specific circumstances really should be questioned. And so our members responded to this call by submitting close to 200 suggestions for consideration. Following that, APTA then called upon an expert panel of our members with experience in a wide variety of practice settings with a wide variety of patient populations, and they met multiple times to determine which suggestions met the criteria for inclusion on the list. And that included a full review of the research that's available that is related to those various suggestions. So this reduced list was then put forth to uh, the full ABTA membership, over 88,000 members who were allowed to respond to a survey and select the five items to be included on APTA's list. So this list was then finally approved by APTA's board of directors before it was submitted to the Choosing Wisely campaign. So APTA will be considering developing additional lists in the future, possibly partnering with its sections or with other healthcare professional societies on lists that relate to physical therapist practice. It's a great campaign. It really shows physical therapists coming together to not only make sure consumers are aware, but to make sure that they're unified within their own profession and providing the best practice. Nancy White, Tara Jimenez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. For the list of five things a physical therapist and patient should question, and for a link to the related consumer report story, go to moveforwardpt.com slash choosingwisely. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.